Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, December 11th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we are here with our friend Truthfids to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 64 in this series of discussions. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Once again, over our last few presentations here, we have been discussing themes found in the ministry and epistles of Paul of Tarsus, which helped to establish that the white European nations to whom he had brought the gospel were indeed the same nations which had descended from the ancient children of Israel. So we have already discussed Paul's commission from Christ, how Paul had applied that commission, the subjects of biblical redemption, Israel having been estranged from the covenants, the adoption of Israel and the ministry of reconciliation. All of these things prove that Paul of Tarsus was taking the gospel of Christ to Israelites, descendants of ancient Israel who were by that time known by many other names as he toured Europe. Now we shall continue with Paul's explanation of the scope of the covenants and his references to the family of the faith, which is not a reference to mere believers joining some church. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so here we're going over the scope of the covenant. And um, we already mentioned the prophecies in like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, how the old covenant was broken. It was going to be put away, but a new covenant was going to be made uh, with the same people as the old covenant. So essentially, uh, Christ came for the same people as the old covenant, the Israelites. And here we're getting more into the perspective of uh, the Apostle Paul's perspective, how he understood very well what all this meant that the new covenant after studying for three years he came to realize that the israelites were scattered around europe and that his goal his purpose the reason uh you know christ blinded him and chose him to spread this gospel was because he was gonna go to the israelites in europe and explain all throughout his epistles that that's essentially his mission for, for the same people right and there's no room for anybody else no space for uh, other races other families other people it's only for the children of israel right bill well, well right absolutely and and even though many of these aspects of paul's ministry cite we we are citing roughly the same scriptures today we do not cite isaiah not to any great extent, at least. I don't really think I'm citing Isaiah here at all. I, I could be wrong. I mentioned citing Isaiah. So I'm not citing Isaiah today. And, and that's probably a switch for discussion of Paul of Tarsus because so much of Paul's work cross-references Isaiah chapters 41 through 66. It, it's incredible. But each of these aspects of Paul's epistles, even though we use the same or similar citations 
in the Old Testament to explain them. They each prove the congruency, if I could put it, in, in the Word of God and how the New Testament doesn't stand without the Old Testament and that all the promises are definitely to the same exact people and that Paul of Tarsus never thought otherwise. He always believed throughout his epistles that he was taking the gospel to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he was essentially told to do. And that is how he himself explained what he was doing. So where these churches come off with this universalism and, and this belief that any believer can join the body of Christ, it is robbing God. It's robbery. It's fraud. It's a massive fraud. We discussed this subject in Proofs 35 and 36 in part 12 of the series in relation to both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where we had discussed first Jeremiah chapter 31 and secondly Ezekiel chapter 37 and promises of a new covenant. They both promise a new covenant explicitly for the children of Israel. But when we did that, we hardly mentioned Paul of Tarsus, and we didn't really cross-reference any of Paul's writings in his epistles. So now we shall speak of those passages again, and others, but this time from the perspective of the ministry of Paul, because his confirmations of these prophecies stand as a proof as to why he had taken the gospel of Christ to the white nations of Europe. So speaking of the adoption of Israel, which we had discussed at length in our last presentation, we had cited Jeremiah chapter 33, where we read, and we'll read it again. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, saying, Considerest thou not what this people have spoken? Now, by saying this people, he's addressing the Babylonians, saying, The two families which Yahweh had chosen, he has even cast them off. Thus they have despised my people, that they should be no more a nation before them. And the question is rhetorical. And in context, it is asked by the Babylonians. It's a question put into their mouth by God as projecting their attitude. The truth is that Yahweh had not cast off Israel and Judah. So continuing, we read, Thus saith Yahweh, If my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. So this is saying that even if the children of Israel continued, that even if the children of Israel were put off in punishment, they continued to be the exclusive people of God. As long as there were day and night, that the children of Israel would be the seed of Jacob 
would be the chosen people of God, and that that fact would remain. It would never change as long as there is day or night. So basically it will go on forever and ever, and um, it can't be broken. That's he's essentially uh, assuring us, right? Absolutely. And they are his exclusive people. And the reasons why they were put off in punishment are explained in those same prophets. So I'll, I'll read it first from Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? So, ultimately, the objective of that punishment is to force the children of Israel to compel them to depart from their sin and agree with their God. And that's why they're being punished. They're not being punished to be destroyed. They will never be destroyed, as we just read in, in Jeremiah. And there are many other promises that they will never be destroyed. So, as we also mentioned in our last presentation, in, in, a, in, reference, in, in reference to the adoption, the limits of that punishment are described in Hosea where it says, yet, after they're declared to be not his people, it says, yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. So this is not prophecy to be spoken unto anybody but the children of Israel. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together, no Gentiles in, in that equation, and appoint themselves one head, which they did when they accepted the gospel of Christ, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows. So we see that the punishment has a limit. And the end objective is that the children of Israel volunteer themselves to be obedient to Christ. They shall appoint themselves one head. And, those, and, and we'll, dis, we'll touch on that more a little later on in some of these citations. Those same limits, the limits to that punishment, are also mentioned in Jeremiah in chapter 30, and it says, Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob, saith Yahweh, neither be dismayed, O Israel, for lo, I will save thee from afar, and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with thee, saith Yahweh, to save thee, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered thee, 
yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure, as we read in, in Amos, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. And the same statements are repeated again in a nearly identical passage in Jeremiah chapter 46. Yes, yeah, somebody posted um, an interesting meme in the chat and that um, all these nations that we were scattered to, uh, if Yahweh promised to end them and then there's people still claiming to be Assyrians or uh, Medes or Persians today, well, then Yahweh's word isn't true. They, they can't be those same people because Yahweh said he was going to end those nations. They can only be bastards, right? It's the only way. As um, What do you say about the Philistines? A, a, a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, uh, their capital city, right? And the Absolutely. pride of the Philistines will be cut off, right? Absolutely. And all of those nations are actually bastards today. They're, none of them are true Assyrians or, or true Persians. They're all race-mixed. And bastards, and, and Ashdod is a good example. I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. That's, that, that's found in Zechariah chapter 9, where it says a bastard will dwell in Ashdod as a punishment for what the Philistines had done to the children of Israel over the course of their history in Palestine. So, so a bastard shall dwell in Ashdod is the exact, I mean, that's being spoken in Zechariah. And Zechariah was a prophet of the second, early second temple period at the rebuilding of the second temple. So that happened in 520 to 516 B.C. So Zechariah is writing this around that time, and that shows that the Philistines, as they inhabited Ashdod when Zechariah wrote, were not yet bastards. Now, we know from the, the accounts, the historical accounts of Scripture, that there were Rephaim among them. Goliath was a Rephaim. And, and he was one of their mercenaries. But that doesn't mean that the Philistines had mingled with the Rephaim to any great degree. That shows that the, the Philistines of Zechariah's time, 520 BC, were not bastards, but that they would be punished and bastards will live in their land. That probably what was fulfilled by the time of the second century BC, when we see Edomites dwelling in the cities that formerly belonged to the Philistines. And by the time of the Maccabees, I, I don't even think the Philistines are, are mentioned. Let me see. The land of the Philistines and join themselves unto them in, in Maccabees in the second century. But it's certain that the bastardization process is already taking place. There are no Philistines by the time of Christ. There's no people in the New Testament identified as Philistines. What happened to them? That they must have been bred out of existence by then. Because in contemporary times. Josephus does not mention Philistines, but he speaks plenty of, of Edomites and other people 
dwelling in, in lands formerly belonging to the Philistines and of Israelites. But the Philistines have had indeed lost their identity as a people. And yeah, and their the pride is cut Edomites. off, right? T- today, um, we're, we're being humbled as well. All our great cities are uh, turning into hellholes as they're overrun by bastards. And it's humbling us, right? It, it realizes that we have to get out and, and um, repent, essentially, right? Absolutely. And, and yes, a bastard shall live in London, a bastard shall live in New York, a bastard shall live in Chicago or, or Chicago. It, it's, there, there's no doubt. These things aren't prophesied in, in any prophecy in Scripture that this would happen, but we don't, we, we refuse to understand and learn from the examples of scripture so the same thing happens over and over again throughout history it doesn't stop if we learn from the examples of scripture we wouldn't really need to repent because we wouldn't accept all this sin and and it's no mistake that as we began to accept sin no fault divorce for example was be, became the status quo among the laws in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. And no-fault divorce basically legitimized adultery because it protected adulterers. The whole concept of no-fault no divorce. It used to be that you would hire an investigator or find a way to prove that your spouse was cheating on you and committing adultery. And when that was found to be true, if you could prove that in court, the courts would punish the adulterer by awarding the the preponderance of the property and, and child support and things like that to the spouse that did not commit the adultery. No fault divorce legitimized adultery. And then we allowed abortion. And, and then there were court de- court decisions in the United States, which destroyed the, the laws that the, many of the states had against race mixing. So it's no mistake that at the same time, these sins, race mixing and, and abortion and adultery and homosexuality, because the laws barring sodomy were done away with, or they at least stopped enforcing them in most states long before they were taken off the books. All these things became acceptable at the same time that our cities were being overrun with Negroes and destroyed. And white people can't even walk down most city streets at night today or any day because of of the crime and the risk involved in that. That you will be robbed or you will be raped or something horrible will happen to you. And and they just don't see that pattern. It's no different than what happened to to the Philistines. It's no different. They, They were bred out of existence between the time of Zechariah and the time of the New Testament, they, were, they had no longer any national identification. And ever since, only bastards have lived in their cities. So what we see in Zechariah became absolutely true 
in a relatively short time, only a couple of hundred years. Getting back to these statements from Jeremiah chapter 30, that Yahweh would punish Israel but make a full end of all the nations, I'm sorry, where Israel was scattered. A short time later, one chapter later, there was a promise of a new covenant found in Jeremiah chapter 31. Now, this is the only place that there was a new covenant promised several times in Ezekiel, and we will get to that. But it's not called, quote unquote, new covenant. But that doesn't mean that it's not a new covenant. It certainly is a new covenant being promised, even if the word new wasn't used by Ezekiel explicitly. A promise of a covenant or that Yahweh would make a covenant at some point in the future is enough of an implication that it would be a new covenant by itself, right? So in Jeremiah chapter 31, we have the only explicit promise of a new covenant, but that doesn't mean it's the only. Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the Sinai covenant, right? The, the Levitical covenant, we, all, we also call it. Which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband unto them, saith Yahweh. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Speaking to the same house of Israel and the house of Judah, it doesn't say that any Gentiles will be his people in the new covenant. It's only the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor which must be fellow Israelites, and every man his brother, which must be fellow Israelites, saying, No Yahweh, for they all, which must be all Israelites, shall know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, because they were lawbreakers, and I will remember their sin no more because they needed forgiveness for their sins in order to be reconciled to God. Polytarsus cited these very same verses verbatim from the Septuagint in chapter 8 of his epistle to the Hebrews, and a little later on we're going to read that again. Bill, Bill where it says they shall all know me, that's like everybody knows Christ, right? And uh, at least we used to all know his Ten, Ten Commandments and his laws, right? Well, for, for many years, for many centuries, every white European knew Christ from the gospel because people actually read the Bible or heard the Bible being read in their churches. So yes, they all knew Christ. Nobody needed to say, no Jesus, like these hippies love to say today, that these hippie Christians, they're not even Christians. No Jesus, no Jesus. No, everybody knows him. Everybody has an opportunity to follow him or reject him. That There's nobody in the white world who doesn't have that opportunity today and hasn't had it for over a thousand years now.
and in most cases, over 1,500 years. Accompanying the promise of the new covenant with Israel and Judah, there is another promise which professes that so long as there are a sun, moon, and stars, the children of Israel would always be a nation, not an empire, not a conglomeration of diverse races stuffed into one geographical region, but a, a nation. So reading a little further on in the chapter, Thus saith Yahweh, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divides the sea when the waves thereof roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith Yahweh, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words we see here in this prophecy that Israel would always be a nation, a single nation, and not a church composed of many different nations, even if at the same time Israel would become many nations, they must all be of the same general race, the same original nation. It cannot be one or the other. Both circumstances must be true. Comparable to the promise that we have read earlier from Jeremiah chapter 33, there is another prophecy of the reconciliation of Judah and Israel found in Ezekiel chapter 37, and this will be long, but we must read it, and we've read it here before, but we must read it in this context. The word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, Take thee one stick and write upon it, for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, which includes Judah, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. Israel was split into two houses in the Old Testament, and they would be rejoined into one house once again in Christ. And they were. At the same time, they were one people. They were many nations in Christian Europe. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim. Joseph was the leading tribe, and the city of Ephraim in Samaria, the capital of Israel. And the tribes of Israel, his fellows, the other eight or nine tribes in northern Israel, depending on how you want to count them, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes, and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations whither they be gone, which were the nations of Syria, Persia, the cities of 
of the Medes and other places where they were resettled by the Assyrians and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land, not necessarily Palestine. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, it was prophesied that they would be brought to a different place, and that place is where we find these mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. That one ruler or prince or David that we discussed earlier in, in this presentation. And they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Christian Europe always recognized that Christ was king. In spite of their earthly kings, even their earthly kings recognized that Christ was their king. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And now we have a further prophecy of Christ. And David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do and do them. And they shall dwell in a land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. This is a promise of a new covenant. It doesn't say new, but it's not the old covenant. This is the, the messianic covenant in Christ, which is the new covenant. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yeah, I will be their God and they shall be my people and the heathen or nations. The nations shall know that I, Yahweh, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Therefore, it is only Israel being sanctified and not any other nations. And that could only be um, Christendom. And also another point was uh, Yahweh promised that they would never be able to return to um, the, the former lands of Israel, right? Right. Uh, as well as what you said, where um, Samuel says there's going to be a new land. So it all adds up that uh, it can't be the Jews in, uh, quote-unquote, Israel. It can only be Europe, the Christendom, and the new new world we set up and colonized, right? Well, absolutely. And and that land wherein my fathers have dwelt, that they dwelt in that land for 600 years from the time of this promise, from the time when Ezekiel wrote, 
before Christ was even born. And it took most of them another 500 to 1,000 years to hear the gospel, depending on whether you are a Roman, a Macedonian, a Goth, or, or a Saxon. The people of Israel and Judah did become one stick in Christendom, but that has nothing to do with Jews. The Assyrians took much of Judah into captivity not long after they took most of Israel. The Christian people of Europe may not have understood that they were Israel and Judah, but they did not have to be conscious of that in order for it to be true. Many Israelite Judeans also joined the Christians of Europe in the early centuries of Christianity. There are further promises of a new covenant with the house of Israel, which also includes Judah, in Ezekiel chapters 16, 20, and 34. So in chapter 20, we read, in part, As I live, saith Yahweh God, surely with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. And that is Christ as king, as Christ is Yahweh God incarnate. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. So Yahweh's hand was behind the migrations of the children of Israel from Mesopotamia and the regions around the Black and Caspian Seas into Western and Central Europe. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. That's because there they received the gospel. 600 or, or 1100 or, or even 1600 years later, in the case of some of the Germanic tribes in Scandinavia. We discussed the children of Israel in the wilderness in Proof 68 in Part 57 of the series, citing Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Revelation, among other scriptures. Now, as it continues... Yahweh once again discusses the punishment of Israel and the reconciliation in the gospel in Jeremiah chapter 33 in verse 36. I'm sorry. I'm not reading from Jeremiah chapter 33. I'm reading from Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 36. Like as I pled with your fathers in the wilderness in the land of Egypt, so will I plead with you, saith Yahweh God, and I will cause you to pass under the rod the same punishment that we read of, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels, and them that transgress against me, I will bring them forth out of the country wherein they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am Yahweh. That was around 600 BC, and in Ezekiel, Yahweh was describing something which would develop over many centuries. As we have already discussed at length in part 63 of this series concerning the adoption of Israel in Proof 78, 
Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul of Tarsus had attested that the covenants and promises, among other things, are for Israelites. And in that same place, he had defined Israelites as his kinsmen according to the flesh. And not Israelites according to some mere profession or claim of belief or because of some church membership. Then in Hebrews chapter 8, Paul wrote, comparing Yahshua Christ to Moses, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he, meaning Christ, is the mediator of a better covenant, meaning that covenant where Jeremiah said, and Ezekiel also, not according to the covenant that I made with your fathers. A better covenant than the covenant made at Sinai, which was established upon better promises. And we've seen, and we've pointed out here several times, for instance, from Luke chapter 1, that the New Testament is established upon the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was not established upon the Levitical covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. In other words, there was purposely fault built into the Sinai covenant. And the fault laid on, on the part of the children of Israel, but Yahweh God foresaw it because he foresaw in Deuteronomy its first prophesied that the children of Israel would be taken into captivity. In fact, I'm wrong. It's in Numbers. In Numbers chapters 23, 24, it's prophesied that the children of Israel would be taken captive by the Assyrians. So Yahweh God, when he made the Sinai covenant, he foresaw its failure, which is why the children of Israel were taken into captivity as both the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy prophecy. And there are clear prophecies in those books. So he foresaw this failure that Paul speaks of here. So it's not Paul saying that the covenant had 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 fault. It's the Old Testament which says it. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So the new covenant was actually seen, foreseen by God before the foundation of the world. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is, of if you look at the Greek of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews, and you compare it to the Greek of the Septuagint, it's a verbatim quotation from Jeremiah chapter 31. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith Yahweh, or the Lord in the King James Version. 
I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And then Paul, finishing his citation from Jeremiah, goes on and writes, In that he saith, a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which is decay, which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. So Paul is basically simply making an analogy because according to the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, in his sacrifice, Yahshua Christ had done away with the old covenant completely. The Levites of Paul's time, most of them simply didn't realize it yet. Paul of Tarsus, having said these things concerning Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant in reference to Christ, reinforces the fact that the covenant confirmed in Christ is confirmed along the same lines that had originally been promised in Jeremiah to fulfill the promises made to the fathers concerning their seed, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which at the same time would be made into one stick as the prophecy in Ezekiel complaint explains in relation to that same new covenant. The house of Israel was not in Judea at the time of Christ, except that ostensibly many of the Greeks, Romans, and Samaritans had indeed descended from ancient Israelites. Rather, the house of Israel and a great portion of the house of Judah were scattered across the nations of Anatolia, Mesopotamia, and Europe. The apostles only took the gospel to those places. All of the accounts of Philip in India or Andrew or in Egypt, they are all apocryphal accounts that came along centuries later out of the pens of the scribes of the Roman Catholic Church. But there is no evidence for any of them. The apostles only took the gospel to those places in Anatolia, Mesopotamia, and Europe. And therefore, that is how we should understand Paul, where he had written in Romans chapter 15, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, and that the nations, not Gentiles, the nations of Israel, not the nations of, of anyone else, might glorify God for his mercy. For I will confess to thee among the nations and sing unto thy name. So the... And Paul, I'm sorry. And Paul wanted to go even further, didn't he? He wanted to go to Spain or Iberia and Gaul, and he probably would have kept going to Germany uh, and eventually Britain, right, if he could have kept going. So it's all that direction, right? 
Right, he expressed in in Romans, in that same chapter, I believe, Romans chapter 15, that he had been to Illyricum. Now, Luke wasn't with Paul all of the time in Paul's travels. In fact, it's very evident that Luke was only with Paul for a couple of years here and there. He was with Paul for a couple of years, and when Paul departed from Philippi, with Silas, that Luke stayed behind in Philippi. And when Paul, many years later, had traveled from Corinth, after he visited Corinth, as he had stated he would in his second epistle to the Corinthians, that he was already in Greece and headed to Corinth when he wrote Second Corinthians, After he visited Corinth, which he did after he wrote that letter, in 57 AD, he had embarked again on a voyage to the Troad. And as it's described in Luke chapter 20, Luke had joined him in the Troad coming from Philippi. So Luke was only with Paul for a, for a brief couple of years, as it's recorded in Acts chapters 16 and 17, and then Luke stayed with Lydia in Philippi. So you might infer something from that, right? And he stayed with her there until Paul went to the Troad, and Luke joined Paul in the Troad. And then Luke accompanied him with the other apostles, accompanied him to Palestine. So so Luke was not with Paul for the, the entire time. So Luke couldn't have possibly recorded everything that Paul did. He could only have recorded anything that Paul told him. And there's evidence in the epistles that they may have been together at diverse times, that they may have visited in Paul's travels, but Luke didn't travel with him all that time. He was in Philippi and met with Paul again later. So perhaps Luke didn't know that Paul ever went to Illyricum, which is Illyria, right? The, the and, and those people were Dardanians by race. They were Trojans by race related to the Romans. But Paul mentioned going as far as Illyricum, which is pretty far north of Greece, a couple of hundred miles. And that seems to be the northernmost extent of his travels. He expressed in that same chapter of Romans that he wanted to go to Spain, but he never made it there. If he'd have made it to Spain, yes, I believe perhaps he could have gone further. It would have been easy for him in, in Roman times in the first century to travel as far as Britain. Britain had been conquered by the Romans in the time of Claudius, perhaps around 43 AD, maybe 44. I, I don't remember the precise year of the rebellion of the Iceni under Boudicca. But that was the last 
great struggle which Rome had in conquering Britain. After that, it was it, it was relatively peaceful, except for the wars on the frontiers in the north that the Romans constantly had to fight against the invading Picts, right? So, so it would have been relatively safe for Paul to travel in Britain in the 50s, as he expressed wanting to go to Spain. When he wrote the epistle of the Roman, to the Romans, he was writing, I believe, from the Troad in 57. So it was relatively safe for him to travel to Britain after the time of Claudius. But he never made it to Spain, so he couldn't have ever made it to Britain. I know that there's a lot of people that put stock in that 29th chapter of Acts, but I did a podcast a long time ago proving that the 29th chapter of Acts is absolutely phony. It's a forgery. It's a fake. It's not real. It it may have been concocted by British Israel, but it it, it was concocted. Whoever made it up, it's made up. It's not real. Not at all. I just find it amazing how they was able to find each other uh, in those days. You know, you had no um, mobile phone or anything, how they could just meet up, um, you know, in Macedonia or, or, you know, wherever, in Anatolia or this city or that city. You know, how Luke could just find Paul so casually. Well, Well, right, but I'm sure that they constantly wrote back and forth. I'm sure Paul and all the apostles had kept in close touch. The Romans had a, a post system. They had a system where, where you could send messages, letters by post to people in other cities. And I'm sure they sent letters back and forth all the time. It's just that very few of those letters survived because at the same time, Christianity was being consistently persecuted. Really, if you look at the 14 epistles, which we have from Paul of Tarsus, because the epistle to the Hebrews definitely belongs to Paul of Tarsus, without a doubt. We only have four personal epistles, which are the letters to Philemon, the two epistles to Timothy, and the epistle to Titus. So there's four personal epistles, and there are 10 pastoral epistles, which were written to specific Christian assemblies, right? There were really nine pastoral epistles to specific Christian assemblies, and one pastoral epistle written to the Hebrews, and, and it was meant for an audience that was not yet Christian, but it was written to Christian Hebrews, And it was giving Paul's arguments against those Hebrews who were not Christians, who who did not accept Christ, who rejected Christ and and followed the Pharisees and the Sadducees instead. You could tell that it was written to Christians because in its closing chapter, Paul felt it important to inform them of the fate of Timothy, who had been released from custody. So that alone also proves, since Timothy was not with Paul when Paul went to Rome a while later, 
that the epistle to the Hebrews was written as Paul's defense, as an extension of what Paul had told the people of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, his speech to them at his arrest, that the epistle to Hebrews was an extension of his defense. And it was written while he was imprisoned in Caesarea, for two years, for just over two years, he was imprisoned in Caesarea before he was sent to Rome. So that's when the epistle to the Hebrews was written, because Timothy did not accompany him to Rome. Timothy only visited him in Rome later on, after Paul had written that first epistle to Timothy, and then the second epistle to Timothy, asking Timothy to come to Rome. So Timothy never went in chains to Rome, and there's reason for that, I could explain that, but was released, was arrested by Paul ostensibly, and released in Caesarea. There was another man with Paul. Aside from Luke, Luke was a volunteer traveler. He volunteered to be of assistance to Paul while he was under arrest, and, and that was the climate of the times. That, that arrest wasn't as strict as the military hostage arrests that we see with in, in the West today, right? Arrest was a lot looser back then. Paul was able to stay in his own hired house in Rome and things like that. So before he was actually going to be sentenced and executed, right? When he was probably put under stricter arrest. But... Aristarchus was a Macedonian, I believe, and Aristarchus was sent to Rome in chains with Paul. So these men must have been arrested with Paul in Acts chapters 20 and 21. But Luke doesn't mention them because Luke only follows, and this is typical of scripture, Luke only follows Paul, who is the central figure. But these other men must have been arrested with him because Aristarchus is in, is his fellow prisoner. Aristarchus is sent to Rome with Paul, and Aristarchus is mentioned when Paul wrote his epistle to the Colossians from Rome and his epistle to Philemon from Rome in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and Philemon verse 24. So that Aristarchus that's on the boat with Paul that Luke does mention as being with us, he says, in Acts chapter 27, verse 2, why would Aristarchus be sent to Rome with Paul and Timothy be released from Caesarea? I'll explain that. Because Timothy, even though his father was a Greek and his mother was a Hebrew, ostensibly he was not a Roman citizen. And they decided in Caesarea to let him go. But Aristarchus, being a Macedonian, certainly was a Roman citizen. And like Paul, didn't trust the judgment of the Jews and must have appealed to Caesar. He must have. So he was sent to Rome along with Paul to exercise their right as Roman citizens by having their case heard before Caesar, because they didn't trust the Jews. Paul knew that the Jews wanted to kill him, so that's a digression. But all these things can be explained 
once you understand the actual history and circumstances of the time. Okay. This brings us that this, not the digression, but everything we spoke of before the digression, the promises made to the fathers being confirmed in Christ. This lays an appropriate foundation for us to discuss what Paul had meant where he referred to the family of the faith, because this also proves that the white Europeans to whom he took the gospel are the children of Israel. Yeah, and this is essentially shown that that the covenant's for a family, right? Or or you could say a a whole race, because uh, it's a very large family, right? And um, as we're going to get into, it's constantly mistranslated to, to try and make it, you know, more of a church or the, the Catholic church or whatever denomination that, that it's no longer about the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Instead, it's just believers or however they, they say it, right? Absolutely. It, it's, it, it's a fraud, as I said. It's, it's, that's the only way I could explain it. It's a fraud perpetrated upon people, this universalist church, because the faith is for one family. And that's what all the promises of a new covenant state in the Old Testament, and that's what Paul of Tarsus states in the New Testament, but they purposely mistranslate his words so that you don't see which, when they do mention family or household, you don't so clearly see. They want to obfuscate or obscure which family or household he's speaking of. So the same scriptures which we have just cited concerning the scope of the covenants are relative here. First, we noted from Jeremiah chapter 33 that Yahweh had promised that the two families he had sent into captivity were not cast off, but that they would always be a nation, one nation, before him. Then we cited Amos chapter 3, where Yahweh had told the children of Israel that you only have I known of all the families of the earth, and then explained that he was going to punish them for their sins. Then we cited Jeremiah chapters 30 and 46, where Yahweh promised to make a full end of all nations but Israel. I should say all nations except Israel. And Jeremiah chapter 31, where he promised to make a new covenant with both the house or family of Israel and the house or family of Judah. And that chapter also included another promise that Israel would always be a nation. So that promise is repeated. It's in Jeremiah chapter 33, and it's also in Jeremiah chapter 31 in relation to the new covenant. Israel would always be a nation. So then we read in Ezekiel chapter 37, another prophecy that Israel and Judah would be reunited into one nation, into one stick, and a promise of another covenant, the new covenant, wherein Yahweh God would be their God and David as a type for the Messiah would be their prince or ruler forever. So there would be appointed one head, as we read in Hosea. All of these prophecies were made explicit for one particular family, 
house or nation. A house could be a literal house, but the Hebrew word is also defined in the Brown Driver Briggs Hebrew lexicon as a home, house as containing a family, a household, a family, those belonging to the same household, or a family of descendants, descendants organized as an organized body. That's the way it's worded loosely in, in the edition of Brown Driver Briggs found accompanying the BibleWorks software. I was too lazy to get up and look at my Jesenius lexicon, right? A nation, as the Greek word ethnos, was used in the time of Christ, is properly a people of a particular tribe, and therefore a nation is a nation whether or not it all occupies the same contiguous geographical area. In Roman times, Romans had lived in all parts of the empire, and so did Greeks, but they never lost their national descriptions of Dorian, Athenian, Macedonian, or Roman, or even Judean, as in the case of Paul of Tarsus. Israelites scattered abroad would always be of the house of Israel, regardless of how long they were scattered and regardless of whether or not they remembered from whence they came. It doesn't matter. If you're an Israelite and, and there's no foreign bloodstream introduced into your heritage or, or, or your ancestry, then you're still an Israelite. Even if you're, you're an Israelite for 10,000 generations, you're still Israelites. You might call yeah. yourselves Germans or, or Norwegians or by some other strange name, but you're still an Israelite. Yeah, you can see that also in like the rebellions against uh, whatever empire. But like when people rebelled against Rome, the first thing they do is slaughter all the uh, Romans living in their country. Like just like that uh, Boudicca rebellion, right? They went to London and killed all the Romans. The Germans don't even have. A, a tribal name by which they collectively identify. Some of them are Saxons. Most of them have lost their tribal names. The ones that are Saxons only think they're Saxons because they were born in Saxony. But people have moved around inside of the German states for, for centuries. That the word German isn't a German word. It's a Roman word from a word, Germania, that means authentic. The Germans only called themselves Deutsch, which only means folk or people. It doesn't, it's not a, a, a name in the sense that we think of names. So they don't even have a name. They're just the people. Why is that? <laughs> Probably because that they're the people of God. That's not to say that other European nations aren't also the people, but it's interesting. I always thought it was an interesting aspect of the German nation. 
and uh, Bill, even today we use um, the house of this or the house of that, right? Referring to a family, like all royalty would be called, you know, the house of Hanover or the house of, you know, whatever. Right. All those houses that got us in trouble. You're right. The house of Windsor. Windsor is a made up name. It, it should be the house of Battenberg. <sighs> that the <clears throat> right. We have always used that term, the house. Look, some of the notable houses of European royalty have maintained their identification with their paternal houses for, for many centuries. And, and the, the recent manifestations of that are, are the Habsburgs and, and the Hohenzollerns which was the Prussian royal house, that they still maintain those connections. So a Habsburg is a Habsburg, whether he was the king of Austria or whether he was the king of Portugal or Spain. And there were Habsburgs that were the kings of Portugal and Spain. So, so they were still Habsburgs. They were still, they I maintained that identity, right? No matter where they were. And, and that's the way it should be. Today, some of us maintain connections to our medieval ancestors and our surnames, but many of our surnames don't. They're only place names or, or trade names or things like that. Okay, that's that too is a digression. But it, if I'm a Fink and I'm German, then as long as I stay white, I'm a Fink and I'm German, right? And, and 10 generations of my descendants would be the same way. So that's a digression too. As we have observed in all the passages presented here, at every turn in the Old Testament where we see messianic prophecies, which are prophecies of the coming of Yahshua Christ, or where we see allusions or promises of the gathering of the sons and daughters of God or the gathering of Israel, it is always the twelve tribes, the children of Israel, the two families or two houses, referring to Israel and Judah, which are the explicit subjects and recipients of those promises. So, where Paul of Tarsus used words such as oikaios, which is a household, or oikonomia, which is the management of a household. How could we possibly imagine that he was referring to the management of some church organization or mere body of believers, which is made up of some substance other than those subjects of the original promises and prophecies? In chapter 8 of his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul of Tarsus quoted the promise of a new covenant from Jeremiah chapter 31 verbatim. And there is no indication that he used the words of Yahweh to signify or describe anything other than what Jeremiah understood and intended when he recorded those words. Paul's understanding of the promise must have been the same as Jeremiah's understanding 
of the promise. Neither would Paul have ever had the authority to make such changes. Therefore, we shall examine Paul's use of the terms oikaios and oikonomia. First, from Galatians chapter 6, and both of these words come from the word oikos, or house. I think I described that later, actually. First, from Galatians chapter 6, from the King James Version. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all, and the word men is added in parenthesis in, in italics, but that's fine. Let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of the faith. Right there we see that all men are not of the household of the faith, and, and they certainly aren't. In, in fact, in... Second Thessalonians, no, in, in, in Second Thessalonians, yes, in chapter 3, Paul asks that we be saved from disgusting and wicked men who, who he didn't want to see repent or be converted because, as he said, the faith is not for all. The faith is not for all men. So, in the Christogenian New Testament, we wrote, Family of the Faith. The word for household or family here is the Greek word oikaios. According to Liddell and Scott, oikaios means in or of the house, because the house is the word oikos. And ostensibly, for that very same reason, they add that of persons, it means of the same family or kin, related and also belonging to one's house or family. The faith being according to the promises to Abraham, as Paul had explained in Romans chapters 4 and 15 and elsewhere, the family of the faith can only be the seed of Abraham through Jacob, which had become many nations according to that same promise, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 4. This is also the household of God, as Paul used the same word, oikaios, in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul described that household as being the seed of Abraham in fulfillment of the promises of God in his epistles in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3, and explained that they were also at one time subject to the Levitical ordinances and to the laws of God in Galatians chapters 3, 4, and 5. That is the context in which he made this statement concerning the family of the faith, where we had already explained that Christ had come to redeem those who were under the law in Galatians chapter 4, Paul makes this statement concerning the family of the faith in Galatians chapter 6. You can't separate one idea or concept in Paul's epistles from the other. This is the context of Paul's epistles. 
of Paul's epistle to the Romans and of his epistle to the Galatians. So going back to the promise of a new covenant found in Jeremiah chapter 31, where it states that the covenant would be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In the Septuagint version of Jeremiah, which is what Paul was quoting in Hebrews chapter 8, the word for house in that passage is oikos, which is literally a house, but also a household or family. The sense in which the equivalent Hebrew word appears in that same passage in the Masoretic text, from that word oikos, the words oikaios and oikonomia are derived for family and management of a family. So it can't just suddenly change uh, when he says it, right? If it's the house of Israel, the house of Judah, the people, the family, and then suddenly it becomes the house of the faith. Suddenly it's uh, anybody who believes. Paul can just suddenly change it, right? Right. Paul had no authority to change that. But if you read his epistles, he had no will to change that. His intention was to teach exactly what Jeremiah and Ezekiel were teaching and prophesying. And that was Paul's intention, as Paul himself states it. It's incredible the directions in which denominational universalist churches twist Paul's words and ignore. They always ignore the crucial statements and they twist the minor phrases such as all men to be to fit their own context, taking them out of Paul's context. They'll find one place or two places where Paul said all men, and they make a whole doctrine out of all men, out of just those two words, ignoring all of Paul's other words. They do it all the time. For the same reason that these promises were to, were all, all these promises of Christ and of the New Testament and of redemption and of reconciliation, all these promises, the entire scope of the covenant as we just discussed, were for a family, for 12 tribes that were a family, that were also in their own right a nation, but had grown into a multitude of nations according to the prophecy, but they were still a nation as the children of Israel and a family as the children of Israel, even though by this time, after much multiplying and, and dividing, they were thousands and thousands of families. They were still a family and a nation. So for that reason, twice in chapter 3 of his epistle to the Ephesians, in verses 2 and 9, Paul had used the similar Greek word, oikonomia, which, according to Liddell and Scott, is the management of a household or family. He also used it in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in Corinthians chapter 9, where he said that he had been entrusted with the oikonomia. He had been entrusted with the management of a family. But on every occasion, the King James translation absolutely ignores the primary meaning of oikonomia and translates it in some general manner. And here we will read the pertinent verses, but we shall read them from the Christogenian New Testament 
as we took serious issue with the King James translations of each of these verses, which we already described at length in Proof 45 of the series, in parts 25 through 31. So I won't get into or debate the translations again. I would only be repeating myself from everything I said in Proof 45 which I will try to avoid doing. But even though this material and much of it, I, I have a few new things here, but much of it was presented in part, in Proof 45, that had to do with the mistranslations where this, the scope of the covenant and, and this aspect of Paul's ministry being the management of a family stands as a proof by itself. So here we are. And, and we did the same thing with the adoption and the reconciliation, that they are all proofs by themselves that Paul was going to Europe with this gospel for the specific reason that that was where these 12 tribes, this family, this nation was located. And they were among some other people, some Jepethite tribes and and other Shemite tribes, such as the Lydians. But for the most part, that's where the origin of these modern European nations is found in the captivity of the children of Israel or in the early migrations of the children of Israel to Europe. So, first, from Ephesians chapter 3, and I'm going to read a lengthy section because the that the context from verses 1 through 9 is important to the arguments that are going to be presented here about the substance of Paul's ministry. And it's in verse 1 and in verse 9 where we see this word oikonomia in the Greek manuscripts, not in the King James Version. So from the Christogenian New Testament, for this cause, I, Paul, captive of Yahshua Christ on behalf of you, of the nations. If indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, now, there the King James simply has of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is dishonest because it doesn't fully translate that word oikonomia, which is important in seeing Paul's application of his ministry, which is for the management of a family for the children of Israel. And, and we'll get into that even more later. If indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh, which has been given to me in regard to you, seeing that by a revelation the mystery was made known to me, just as I had briefly written before, which we wish we had that epistle, but we don't, there must have been other epistles to the Ephesians, or at least one other epistle to the Ephesians. So we can add that to our collection because there was another epistle which Paul mentioned explicitly to the Corinthians that's lost now and an epistle to the Laodiceans which he mentioned explicitly in his epistle to the Colossians which is lost now. 
So here he insinuates that he had written an earlier epistle to the Ephesians, which is evidently lost now. Paul must have written a thousand epistles. His ministry was 25 years. He was obviously knowing where certain apostles were at given times, as you had stated earlier, that he knew that Luke was in Philippi, and Luke had written in Acts chapter 20 explicitly that he left Philippi to meet Paul in the Troad. They didn't just bump into each other by chance, right? <laughs> they must have been writing each other. So Paul probably wrote thousands of epistles in 25 years. What else did he do at night while he traveled? He didn't have Facebook. He didn't have Telegram. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry about all the digressions, but some of them are necessary. We, we don't, it's hard for us to imagine the circumstances back then in a world so different from our own. So, just as I had briefly written before, besides which reading, you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed. It's not Jesus Christ that's the subject here. It's the management of the family of the favor of God that's the subject here. And at, as we could discuss, but I don't think we've really discussed at length in this series, there are many places in the New Testament where that word Christ really refers to the anointed, to the people of the body of Christ, which in other generations had not been made known to the sons of men as it is now revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit. Now, what's revealed in his holy ambassadors and prophets by the Spirit? Well, Paul's referring to the management of a family, and for that reason, he next states, and we're not going to translate that word Gentiles as Gentiles, because the word ethnos means nations. Those nations which are, because some nations are not, right there should tell you that some nations are not. Those nations which are joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise in Christ Yahshua, through the good message of which I have become a servant in accordance with the gift of the favor of Yahweh, which was given to me in accordance with the operation of his power. Well, the nations must be identified, as Paul says here, in the words of the prophets. If they're not identified in the words of the prophets, then Paul didn't come for those nations. Because here he said, it's revealed in the apostles or ambassadors and prophets. So he continues and says, To me, the least of all saints, has been given this favor to announce the good message to the nations, the unsearchable riches of the anointed, again, and to enlighten all concerning the management of of the household of the mystery. Now, instead of management of the household, instead of oikonomia, the King James Version has fellowship here. I will get to that momentarily. 
and to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery, which was concealed from the ages by Yahweh, by whom all things are being established. The issue which we have with the King James Version in translating this passage is made more complicated because the late manuscripts upon which it was based have koinonia in verse 9 here for fellowship in place of oikonomia. But all of the early manuscripts have oikonomia. Now, I should touch and, and have another digression, if you don't mind, on some of the manuscripts. <laughs> so I don't think you mind. I, I have some notes here. The error is found beginning from the 16th century, as far as I can determine. With Elsevier's so-called Textus Receptus. And apparently... It is no earlier than that. Not at all. So he changed it from family or house to, to um, this fellowship, right? Is that what you're kind of saying? Well, well, examining the information available to me in, in the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grece, that is all I can determine, is that with Elzevir's Textus Receptus, we have this replacement and, and it might have been an honest error, even. Or it might have been from a manuscript that Elzevir had. I mean, I believe Elzevir is a Jew. Okay? They came from Portugal, and that word, Elzevir, is more of an Arab or Hebrew term. It's not a Germanic name. I'm convinced that the Elzevirs, the famous printers of the Netherlands, were Jews. So, what, what language did he translate it to? Sorry, he didn't translate. He published. He right, published. Okay. And what language did he publish it in? Sorry, Greek. His New Testament, his Textus Receptus, was a Greek publishing publication of the New Testament. He didn't translate. So he was claiming that this was, um, you know, a copy of a copy of, you know, the oldest one, and this was the legitimate one. But clearly, he made a few little alterations. Well, well, the manuscripts of the New Testament, the manuscripts that give us the King James Version New Testament, that's we have to talk about them for a moment, right? And. There was a scholar, and and I think sometimes too much credit is given to him, but he was revered as the leading scholar in Europe. His name is Erasmus, and Erasmus read Greek, and he collected any Greek manuscripts of the Bible which he could get his hands on. So he had perhaps nine manuscripts, and none of them date to before the 10th century A.D., this is pretty well-known history. I've discussed it in several contexts at Christogenia. So Erasmus had to him nine manuscripts, copies of the New Testament available. And he decided to create a manuscript from that. But he also drew from some Latin and other sources in creating what he thought or what he presented as 
his edition of the Greek New Testament. Now, after Erasmus, perhaps a hundred years after, came along Stephanus, Robert Estienne, E-S-T-I-E-N-N-E, Robert Estienne, his, the, the humanist scholars at the time taking Latin names for themselves, right? Robert Estienne called himself Stephanus, and he amassed a collection of lexicons which was larger than that of Erasmus. I think he had about 26 manuscripts. And still, the only truly ancient manuscript that scholars of Stephanus' time had access to was the Codex Beze. And the Codex Beze is named for another scholar of the age, Theodore... Theodore Beezus, or, or something like that. I, I forget exactly. And I believe he recovered that codex from Spain or Africa. I, I forget the, the details of that. Let me see what we have here. I, I don't even, his name may not even be Theodore Beezus. I might have that wrong. I'm kind of trying to look for it, right? And the Wikipedia page isn't even cooperating with me. I know it's on here. That's besides the point. That, I believe that seventeenth early 17th century scholars had access to that. And if I'm not mistaken, the King James translators had access to the Codex Beze. However, they mostly followed those manuscripts which Erasmus had. And Stephanus didn't even publish his edition of the New Testament until after the King James Version had been translated. Robert Stephanus. I'm looking for him now. I'm not sure I have the right one. No, I probably don't. So that's, I'll let this go. It's some of the details are a little murky to me because it's been so long since I've discussed it that I don't have it all down like I, like I think I should, but that's okay. My point is this, Stephanus, after the King James Version was published, published his own edition of, of a Greek text based on Readings from the Codex Beze and from perhaps 25 or 26 other Greek manuscripts, none of them except the Beze being of any great antiquity. The Beze is generally dated to the 5th century AD. So that was the best that scholars could do at the time. And which of those manuscripts may have had koinonia rather than oikonomia here in this passage of Ephesians, I, I can't tell, but the manuscripts that do have it that I can identify only date back or can I can only trace back to Elsevier and the Textus Receptus. Elsevier took a collection of manuscripts and published them as the so-called 
Textus Receptus. Textus Receptus was not a scholarly name. It wasn't. And sometimes, and I even in, in my early podcasts, I believe, had had confused it or, or used that label to describe the majority text. But even Elsevier's Textus Receptus was only dated on, on the manuscripts which Erasmus had. It didn't it was first printed I, I think in in um Erasmus's first manuscript was printed in fifteen sixteen. And the Elsevier edition was called the Textus Receptus as a printer's advertisement. That's Elsevier himself, the printer, called it Textus Receptus, received text and published it in 1633. I think that was his first publication of it in 1633. So the King James Version was translated in 1611. And Stephanus, I don't think Stephanus had yet published his manuscripts yet. He he had more Greek manuscripts available to him than Erasmus and, and for that reason also Elsevier. Okay. Elsevier did publish his work in the fifteenth century before the King James Version, because he died in fifteen fifty nine. But he had more manuscripts than Erasmus. And Elsevier's Textus Receptus is based on Erasmus. So I believe, now that I re- see when he died, I can remember, the King James translators had access to STN's work, to Stephanus's work. But he only had 26 manuscripts. And none of them were of any great antiquity. So... The King James translators certainly did incorporate much of the work of Erasmus, but Elsevier hadn't published his edition yet. So if they followed this error that we see in Elsevier's edition, it almost certainly came from Erasmus. I, I, w- I would bet on that. But I don't know which manuscripts of Erasmus because I don't know if we can even identify them all. I don't know if we can identify every one of them. I'm sure Erasmus listed which manuscripts he, he used because they it is known. The quantity of them is known to other scholars, later scholars, but I don't I never saw a description of Erasmus's work in in ink. I've never seen it. I don't even know if any of it actually originally exists. I never pursued it. Because to me, it's spurious. It's based on late manuscripts. So that's a long digression, but that's what it is. And and how this koinonia got replaced this word oikonomia, I don't think we'll ever really know. But it seems now that, that I'm looking at the dates and thinking about it, that it seems like... Elsevier may not have been the culprit. Erasmus may have been the culprit, right? Or perhaps Erasmus was just persuaded by the manuscripts he had.
Yeah, I was just going to say it was the um, Jews in Spain and Portugal who were convincing the Spanish royalty that they found the lost tribes of Israel in uh, America, right, that the native Indians. So it's no surprise that they would be changing, uh, you know, texts like this in the manuscripts. Right. And that that idea goes back to the 16th century in England with the Jews in England. There, there were Jews in, in, in Spain and Portugal trying to convince the king of England of the same thing that the lost tribes were in America. And and I wrote on that Jew, but I can't really remember his name. I hate to remember their names. I'm sorry. That there were letters written by Jewish rabbis to the King of England trying to conv- and and the Cromwell, I believe, trying to convince them that the American Indians were the lost tribes. When the truth is that the the English and Germans themselves were the lost tribes. Yeah, so you can see Jews were always deceiving us, right? Many of them probably realized the truth, but hid it from us. They must have known the truth. They're the ones that had access to all the history. They had access to Josephus. Most white Christians for most of history did not have access, even the scholars, to most of the work that we can cite today. They didn't have it. How many European scholars throughout time had access to Flavius Josephus? The most famous, I mean, how many of them even read Greek? They were all taught to read Latin. Some of them learned Greek. William Whiston did his translation of Josephus. His is the signal English translation. It's still used by most Josephus scholars today. And he lived from 1667 to 1752. During that time, during his life, he translated Josephus into English. And it's still the work used today. It's still the version that I have on my bookshelf. I've never seen a, a another edition of Josephus worthy of replacing it. I don't know who translated the Loeb Classical Library edition. I, I don't have it and, and never looked. But the William Whiston edition remains the by far the most popular edition of Josephus. But it wasn't translated until the early to mid-1700s. So all these medieval scholars upon which Protestantism rests, Luther, Calvin, and, and all these others, Oglethorpe and whoever, that, that they were all dead by then, by the time Josephus was published in English. And, and whether they ever had the opportunity to read it in Greek is highly doubtful. Okay. That's another digression. They didn't have the manuscripts that we have today. That There's a hundred papyri fragments, and some of those papyri fragments date to the second century and contain substantial portions of the Gospels and of Paul's epistles. Then there's the Codex Vaticanus. Which dates to the is dated to the fourth century. The Codex Sinaiticus, which was discovered in a trash heap in in a monastery in the Middle East, and and it dates to the fourth century. 
and and the Codex Alexandrinus, which, which is the believed to be and and rightly so the parent document to the Byzantine text type, which is the majority text. All the manuscripts of the majority text are believed to descend from the Codex Alexandrinus, but they don't all agree with it everywhere. Scribes make errors all the time. So, and and there's the Codex Ephraimiseri, which dates to the 5th century, and, and then there's a collection of codices and, and papyri dating from the 5th through the 7th centuries that are available to us today that none of these were available to an Erasmus or a Stephanus or, or to the King James translators or, or all of these early Reformation scholars. None of them had access to the things we have access to today. So today, we can read these older Greek manuscripts, and we have the tools by which to make much better decisions about what the scripture is telling us than the King James translators had, or than Luther had, or that Erasmus had. And that's... The, and even what, just the technology we have where you can just, you know, a quick Google search, you can... Uh, view so many manuscripts in a few seconds, right? For them, it was a lot tougher than that. Well, well, right, exactly. When I was in prison, it took me two weeks to write a, an essay. Sometimes only a week, a week and a half. But it was always a, a long event where I had to write an outline by hand and then write a draft. And I had to look up all my references out of paper books. I had piles of paper books, real books, right? Which I still have with me. But now I use Bible works and, and I refer to the paper books sometimes, probably several times every podcast or every presentation I prepare. But it's so easy to look up the the Greek of the Textus Receptus or of the Codex Alexandrinus or of the Codex Sinaiticus. They're all online. To look up the Greek of a manuscript, it is so easy to do it electronically that where it used to take me two weeks to write a paper, now it takes me under two days to write the same length paper. And I'm talking about a short paper. I'm talking about like 5,000 words. Today, I often do it in a day because I can look everything up electronically and, and have all these wonderful tools. So that's correct. And, and be more thorough and, and have more, much more at hand than the medieval reformers had or any medieval priest or monk. <clears throat> the advantage they had was solitude and quiet and a lack of noise and distractions. They didn't have Facebook and cell phones. <laughs> That's another story. They were able to focus, but they had very limited resources. So not all they work is bad, but decisions like this, what does this text say? Fellowship, koinonia? No, it says oikonomia. It says management of a family. Okay. It's not the fellowship which was concealed from the ages. It was the children of Israel and their identity that was concealed from the ages. From the 
the, the six or 700 years leading up to the time of Paul, it was a mystery where the children of Israel went because people didn't have access to books and histories. The, the Scythian tribes, the Cimmerians, that they didn't have access. They weren't able to read and write. They, they didn't have that stationary culture to produce all that for, for many hundreds of years after the captivities. Strabo had, had explained that the Germanic tribes were still traveling around in wagons that they traveled around in for 700 years. Yeah, I re recently read um, Jordanus on the history of the Goths, and he traced back the Goths, you know, over centuries and centuries, and he couldn't get back further to when he said that they traveled to over the um, Bosporus, you know, that bit just above the Caucasus Mountains. That's as far back as he could go. And then he said uh, before that, it's a mystery, right? But you can clearly see that they just came over the Caucasus Mountains and from the Israelites, right? Absolutely. That's who the Goths are and the Huns. They came from the Massagete, which had traveled up, ostensibly traveled up through the, the region around the Black and Caspian Seas and settled in what we know today as Kazakhstan in great numbers, but it wasn't long before they began to migrate west, and some of them migrated east. The Huns that invaded China are not the same Huns as the Huns in Europe. No, they're not. That, that's a common misconception. Okay. The issue we have with the King James is, is more complicated. It complicates the reasons for our translation in, in explaining them, but all these things can be explained. As for the household of the mystery that Paul referred to twice in, in here in Ephesians chapter 3, the children of Israel were sent into captivity. They were taken into the wilderness. They were to dwell in allegorical blindness and in metaphorical prisons. And we've discussed all of this in these proofs until they received the gospel of Christ, which is also the gospel of reconciliation, as Paul himself had called it. Several Greek words can mean administration or dispensation. But oikonomia, which appears in both verses 2 and 9 here in Ephesians chapter 3, is precisely the management of a family. So how can we imagine that where Paul uses this term, that it is only in a general meaning that does not accord with and even contradicts the promises of a covenant which were made to a particular family. When Paul himself attests that the purpose of the gospel is to confirm those same promises, how can we imagine that? So translations such as that which are found in the King James Version attempt to rob God and to pollute his promises, to pollute or even dilute his promises. That's what they do. They try to make it sound like it could be for 
everybody. Now we shall move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 16 through 18, where we see oikonomia once again. Therefore, if I announce the good message, it is not a subject of boasting to me. In necessity, it is laid upon me, since woe to me it is if I would not announce the good message. For if I do this readily, I have a reward. But if involuntarily I had been entrusted with the management of a family, the oikonomia, what then is my reward? And the end of verse 18, we cut it short there because the end of verse 18 refers to Paul's main subject of discussion, which is a different topic that is not relevant here. But once again, the King James Version translated oikonomia in a general manner. However, in verse in chapter 10 of that same epistle, in the very next chapter, Paul went on to explain to the Corinthians that their own ancestors were with Moses in the Exodus, and that they and the surrounding nations of the Greeks were Israel according to the flesh, who were practicing the worship of idols and pagan rituals in disobedience from God. So why would Paul say those things? And why would he use this term oikonomia if the Dorian Greeks, whom he is writing to in Corinth, were not part of that family? Why would they be included in the management of a family? Why didn't Paul use some vague general word to describe administration? He goes out of his way to use this term oikonomia to describe his ministry. And oikonomia means the management of a family. Paul uses this word in this manner on one other occasion in Colossians chapter 1 verse 25 where he wrote in part, I have become a servant in accordance with the administration of the household, oikonomia, of Yahweh, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of Yahweh, the mystery which has been concealed from the ages and from the races, that word genos in the plural, but now has been made visible to his saints. And here, once again, the King James Version and others only translate oikonomia in a general manner. But the administration which Paul had, he certainly thought was the administration of that same family which was promised a new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, as he said here that it was meant to fulfill the word of God. The administration of the household of Yahweh, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of Yahweh. So he certainly meant going back to what Paul was given, as we translate Acts chapter 9, verse 15, his instruction, to refer to his instruction, where he was instructed by Christ to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. There is no promise of a new covenant for anyone but the children of Israel. 
They are the family which Paul was managing by bringing them the gospel and organizing them into local Christian assemblies. Yeah, the um, translations take liberties here, right? I was just looking like the um, New International Version. They have the administration of God's grace. So they completely uh, destroy a household or family. They completely remove it, right? They hide it. Right. But there were other words that could have been used to describe that. And Paul chose this word. So he must have meant the literal meaning of the term. Because that accords, that literal meaning is in perfect accordance with all the words of the prophets whom Paul said that his administration was fulfilling. So it's the administration of the household in 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, where I could have written administration of the family of Yahweh. I could have written that as I wrote administration of a family in other places. But to me, household, family, it's roughly the same thing. It is the same thing. So as we have already frequently discussed here, in Acts chapter 26, Paul described the purpose of his ministry where he said, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, our family, unto which promise our 12 tribes, our family, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews, not our family. Then, after having been sent to Rome, perhaps not quite two years later, once again in Acts chapter 28, speaking to the elders of the Judeans at Rome, he said, For this cause, therefore, I have called you, to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel, our family, I am bound with this chain. How can you separate that word family out of Paul's administration when he included it in his use of the term oikonomia? There's another word for administration, and it's used in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in verse 12, and it's diaconia which is a service or a ministering. And the King James translates it as administration at 2 Corinthians 9.12. So why did Paul go out of his way to use the longer word, oikonomia, when he could have just used diaconia, which is the general word? And there are other terms as well, other Greek terms which Paul could have used, but he didn't. In the Septuagint, and, and this is a, a very striking prophecy that sometimes I don't think I cite often enough. In the Septuagint, the same word, oikos, appears repeatedly of the ancient people of Israel taken captive in Ezekiel chapter 39, where the history of the people of Israel ever since the captivity is summarized in a prophecy. 
and the nation shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they trespassed against me. Therefore hid I my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob, and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel, and will be jealous for my holy name. After that, when they have borne their shame, and all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me. And this is going to lead us to another prophecy, which is the camp of the saints, because this hasn't happened yet when they dwelt safely in their land, and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people, and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations, then shall they know that I am Yahweh their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the nations. But I have gathered them unto their own land, and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith Yahweh God. And we still have, the children of Israel still have that promise. Because all the enemies haven't been destroyed, as that chapter explains and prophecies. There are even many more passages than what we have presented here which serve to show that the message of the gospel of Christ was intended for a particular house or family, which is the ancient family of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Those 12 tribes are the household or family of the faith, and there are none others. Those is 12 consistent tribes. from beginning to end. It's always about the family of Abraham, right? Right. <laughs> and right at the end as well. And those 12 tribes are the subject of Paul's ministry. They are the scope of Paul's ministry. The administration of the family of the faith. The management of the household of the faith. Oikonomia. Why is it hard when Paul says according to the apostles and prophets and prophets. We have to look in the prophets to see what oikos he's managing with his oikonomia. And he tells us himself that his struggle is for the hope of Israel, that, that his accusation being made against him by the Jews was because of the hope of the promise God made unto our fathers, under which promise our 12 tribes hope to come. How could the oikonomia be for anyone other than that family, those 12 tribes? Paul points us to the prophets, as he says, according to the word of God pointing to the and word of God changed, right? in the apostles and prophets. If you try and, and be a fool and um, do something for your white race, the Jews will come out and persecute you, right? But if you do anything for uh, Christians 
I all races, then they don't they won't care, right? But as soon Absolutely. as you try and do anything, even if it's not in the name of Christianity, just something for the white race, a charity, they'll immediately come out and persecute you and call you racist, right? Absolutely, they do it every time. Just went through that listening to the Charlottesville trial. There is no doubt, the Jews are the devil, and they play that role well all throughout history. Yep, and the term false accuser fits them also perfectly, right? Absolutely. It's Yeah, I spoke about that last week with Michael Hill. He had to face one of them in court. And, and this lawyer, this Alan Levine, played the role of the devil perfectly. Yeah, you could take that same impish little Jew and put him in a desert with Christ or at the judgment seat of Pilate, and he would fit the same roles in persecuting Christ just as perfectly. He is the personification of the traditional role of the false accuser, the devil. I'm convinced. Thank you for being here. Thanks, family, as always. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you, Bill. Praise Yahweh, and good night.